if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Welcome to Considering Catholicism. I'm Greg Smith, your guide to the faith, life, and civilization that is historic Catholic Christianity. Today is one of our book club episodes. Corey and I both like Catholicism and novels. And so, from time to time, we read Catholic novels and share our thoughts about them. You can go back in the archives and search for episodes labeled Book Club. Recently, we've done Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, Graham Greene's The Power and the Glory, Shusako Endo's Silence, and Robert Hugh Benson's Lord of the World. But today, we're continuing to explore some Catholic science fiction with Michael O'Brien's Voyage to Alpha Centauri. Now, this novel very much checks those boxes because it's brilliant science fiction, but very human and extremely Catholic in its worldview and message. Some of you have written and requested that we do a book club episode on another celebrated Catholic science fiction novel, Walter Miller's Canticle for Leibowitz, which is kind of cool because that's already one of Corey and I's favorite novels and we had already been planning to do an episode about it. So, stay tuned, because that will be coming soon. But we're always reading and talking about a lot of other Catholic novels for book club from various genres. And if you want to know how we define a Catholic novel, then listen to the first installment of book club, which was episode 30, What Makes a Story Catholic. And if you've got requests for books that we should talk about, or comments about the opinions that we share, then please write me at greg at consideringcatholicism.com. Shh! It's time for book club. Well, here we are again, Corey. It's time for book club. Excellent. Let's get into it. Today, we're going to tackle a book by an author named Michael O'Brien, who has kind of become one of my favorite contemporary authors. You want to Share a little bit about what you know about Michael O'Brien. Sure, and feel free to chip in because uh, you've actually read more of his novels than I have. I've I've read three, counting this one. Um, but Michael D. O'Brien is a contemporary Canadian author. Um, he started putting out novels in, I want to say, the 1980s. It's been 30 or 40 years. Um, he is often published through Ignatius Press, which is a well-known um, American uh, Catholic publishing company, which actually mostly publishes nonfiction, um, but has, has published a lot of his fiction. How I would characterize him, um, and, and you can chip in too, is that his novels are very, very dense, uh, very heady, um, they're often very uh, character focused and focused on the themes. It's not light beach reading, um, but it's a very intellectual experience reading one of his novels. Um, and it's a very spiritual experience. He's, he's going to be talking about um, what's going on spiritually with his characters and with the, the society that they're in. Um, it's not surface level stuff. I'd agree with everything that you say. The only word I'd quibble with is 
dense. I would I would I think I would choose rich. Okay. Uh, because yeah, I don't, I don't, I, don't think, I don't say dense in a negative way. No, I don't, I don't know that because I just, I think sometimes if you, you say that a book is dense, it sounds like it's hard to read. I don't think his books are hard no, to I read. No, I don't, I don't, I think that either. Yeah. Uh, what I think is they're rich in the sense that there's a lot going on in, in O'Brien's books and his novels. Um, he, O'Brien typically has, I wouldn't say that he has multiple plots that are simultaneously running through a book. I mean, there are authors where you go, this is like, you know, plot. A and subplot B and subplot C. What I would say is there's less of that, but I would say there's multiple themes. So following the same general plot in most of his books, he's exploring three or four or five different themes that are woven through that plot. And so as you're reading scenes, you're reading characters and things are happening in chapters, it's almost like the focus is turning not to a different plot or different characters, but different aspects of those characters' lives mm-hmm. or different aspects of their reality, different aspects of their spirituality. I think another thing I'd say is that O'Brien is very explicitly Christian, very explicitly Catholic, but it comes at you slowly. So he tends to unpack characters. Unpack, well, it depends on the book. Like the Father Elijah books are, are pretty much in your face. Um, some of the other ones, like the one we're going to talk about today, it, it comes at you a little more slowly. Right. In, in this book that we're going to talk about, you can tell that religion is involved from early on, but it's not apparent unless you know Michael D. O'Brien um, until quite a ways in that it's a central part of it. Right. It's almost like, maybe we'll stick with this book here in terms of characterizing it this way, um, although I think this comes into some of his other ones as well. It's almost as if you had uh, like a, a, you know, a symphony um, or concerto or something. And there's this, this one theme in the music that mm-hmm. just keeps growing and growing and picking up volume until it finally kind of comes out in full crescendo. And I think you see that in this one we're going to talk about today and some of his other ones. He's talking about characters. He talks about places. He talks about all these things. He starts unpacking these, the lives of these people. And religion, in a lot of ways, is, is a lot of times a, 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 not a sub-note or a, a more of a quiet mm-hmm. note. And then as it grows and grows and grows, it becomes the central theme of the book. Right. And so they're, 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 think, they're thinking person's novels. Yes. I, I think yes. they are thoughtful. And they're exquisitely well-researched. So I've read a number of his books, and um, whatever the, wherever the novel is set, uh, in terms of time and place, he does extraordinary research on the place and the time. So another one that we may talk about another time is his book, Island of the World, where he talks about uh, Croatia, the Bosnian War, things like that. And he just unpacks that region, the history of that place in exquisite detail. Even in this one, he unpacks the science of this thing and his world building, maybe that's a better word to put, way sure, to put it. Sure. His world build, building is really extraordinary. So yeah, I think Michael O'Brien's uh, books are fantastic. Great Catholic reads, uh, thinking person's novels. And they're, they're not necessarily, most of them do not follow. So he does a couple of series where there's like a trilogy or whatever. There's, you know, the same character through several books, but a lot of them are sort of one-offs. You know, he does this book, which is like his venture into science fiction. He does another book that's his venture into uh, the Bosnian-Croatian War. And, sure, you know, sure. The, the book we're going to talk about is one of his more recent novels, but you don't really need the context of any, any of his 
previous ones. Correct. You could pick up any of them and just start reading. So let's talk about this. We've been on this theme a little bit of uh, science fiction. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about doing some because you and I both love science fiction. And there's a number of sort of Catholic science fiction books that we've been exploring. So we talked about Lord of the World by Robert Hugh Benson. Mm -hmm. Um, We're doing this. The next one, I'll give the readers, uh, listeners a preview. The next one we're going to be doing is Canticle uh, for Leibowitz Mm -hmm. and maybe some other uh, Catholic science fiction that's on the horizon. I hope so. We both love that. So, boy, that's a long wind up, but let's now (laughs) get into the book. It's called Voyage to Alpha Centauri. And uh, it's really an interesting premise for a book. (laughs) Yeah. So, as you said, it's called Voyage to Alpha Centauri, and you see why from the very beginning. So you have uh, this central character. Um, his name is Neil DeHoyos, or Dr. Neil DeHoyos. He is a physicist. Um, he's, uh, I mean, he's in his, in his later years. I want to say his 60s or his 70s. He's an older character. He's preparing to go on this international well, voyage. Um, no, interrupt. Okay, go ahead. As, yeah. as I want to do. Yes. Um, but what's interesting about this particular character, right, mm-hmm. is that he is the recipient, he was the recipient of two Nobel Prizes. Mm-hmm. So he won two Nobel Prizes in physics. And one of the Nobel Prizes that he, you know, one of the accomplishments that led to one of his prizes was he developed the propulsion system or the, the, the theories? Yeah, his mathematical his, theories were, were behind the, uh, basically the mechanics of this interstellar ship that yeah. they're, they're building um, and uh, mounting a voyage on for the first time. And, and so there's this massive city-sized ship um, that they're going to staff with scientists and technicians and, and all kinds of people. Um, especially brilliant scientists, um, and they're sending them on a voyage to Alpha Centauri, um, which is, uh, I believe, the nearest star system to us that has planets. Nearest star, I think it's like five light years approximately yeah, away. The, the premise in the novel is that it'll take them what, like eight or nine years? Yeah, I think to get nine there. years. So they they don't get you know they don't go warp speed, mm-hmm. uh, but they come close to the speed, close of light. enough to light speed. So that they can cover the five light years in in nine Earth years, mm-hmm, exactly, or nine ship, yeah, yeah, relativity. And and so uh, you have him uh, preparing to get on the ship. He he boards the ship and they leave. And then you have what is essentially the first main section of the novel, which details the voyage there over nine years. Um, and. And, and, and I, by the way, humanity has put together this team mm-hmm. to explore its, you know, the first, there's a planet that right. they've determined is orbiting Alpha Centauri. And they have reason to believe it, it may be habitable. It may even right. have life of its own. So the, the Earth, which is at this point under a one world government, mm-hmm. um, we can talk about that. Uh, a sort of socialist one world government. This is about a hundred years in the future or so. Yeah. So look what we have to look forward to. Uh, but there's this socialist one world government that organ that builds this ship and they load it up with all of the most accomplished people. So it's full of Nobel prize winners mm-hmm. and, and, you know, top people in every kind of conceivable field that can go to this new planet and discover what they hope will be a new earth. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and so the first section is, is that nine year voyage. Um, and the whole novel is uh, written in an epistolary style. So this is uh, entries in Hoyos's journal that you're reading. So you're getting all of his 
um, perspective, how he's, he's experiencing so all he's of this. Day 2,342. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Of, of year seven or something. Um, and, and so you have this long first section of the novel, which is, is simply them traveling there and the, the relationships that he's making with other people on the ship and the conflict that he's getting into with the people in charge. Um, and so you, you have this interesting sort of dual command structure on this ship because you have, you know, the captain and the flight crew and, and sort of the, from the technical side or the command side. And then you have, um, this essentially like psychological, um, control, um, group that is, is essentially supposed to keep the peace and make sure that everything is rolling smoothly. And it, it yeah, it, it's just. You look like you want to say something. Yeah, I do because they're they're called the Department of Social Infrastructure, right? right. And but what they really are—it's reminiscent of the these whole Cold War situations where the Russian ships or whatever would have a political officer on them, Mm -hmm. and the political officer can overrule in many cases the captain because, in a sense, politics is ultimately more important. And in this case, they couch, and this real big theme of this part of it is how much they couch politics and psychology, right? It's mm-hmm. all therapeutic. We're trying to keep everybody happy, but behind that is a real fist of the politics of the world government and you can't contradict their politics. And so what ends up happening is when Hoyos realizes some things that are going on on this ship that he doesn't like and he raises objections to them, they, they, uh, the Department of Social Infrastructure implies that he is uh, mentally unstable and he has to be given medication to calm him down for his own good and the good of everybody else. But really they are doing is using rather Soviet style tactics to suppress a political uh, opponent. Right. It's, it's a sort of fist in a velvet glove kind of, kind of deal where they, they are pretending to be on everybody's side and, and all about peace. Um, but they, they will, you know, use any means necessary in order to enforce their way. Um, and, and they're radically secular, right? So they're right. anti-Christian. And, and some of the things that begin to develop on this thing is how much Christianity is suppressed. Well, government. well and, and even really a step further, because it's true of both the ship and the society on earth that sent it, is that Christianity, for all intents and purposes, has disappeared from public life. Um, there, are, there are some Christians who practice clandestinely, um, and there are sort of pockets of, you might call them like undesirables, um, who aren't fully integrated into the the wider society and, and who are practicing the faith. Um, and you find out through a series of flashbacks that De Hoyos actually grew up in an enclave like this, essentially a trailer park out in what I believe, New Mexico, New Mexico. The, the, the American Southwest of um, Catholic the people were Catholics. They were very poor. You'd get a Franciscan priest running through there as often as he could in order to celebrate the sacraments. Um, they they weren't really integrated into the rest of society. So you you have in one flashback he's visiting this church that's essentially in ruins and like they're just trying to decide whether they're going to knock it down and what right. they're, else they're going to build there. For all intents and purposes, Christianity as a public thing has disappeared and is kind of ignored. It's it's not even that there are Christians on the ship and they get treated poorly is that, um, at least, at least going into it, the perception is that there are no Christians. They've been screened. Right. Because in this society, a hundred years in the future, it's sort of a combination of sort of Soviet style repression of the church 
combined with sort of the Chinese social credit system mm -hmm. that you simply become an undesirable and you can't occupy, you can't take place in public, you can't do anything in public life um, because you're an undesirable. Combined with the sort of radical secularism ideology or humanist ideology that we talked about in Lord of the World. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this government has slogans and all these things and enforced holidays to celebrate, you know, humanity and, and this kind of radical new, you know, uh, secularism. And, and not only that, uh, but they suppress marriage. They practice abortion. And what you find sterilization. out is that sterilization is that back on earth, they have sort of a one child policy that, that children are separated from their parents in this society. You have to go through screen. You have to get permission to have kids. And then once your kids are born, they take them away to state schools. And so this is a society that's done everything it can to suppress Christianity. And of course, Brian's a Catholic, in particular, many aspects of Catholic spirituality. Well, and even and, sort of just natural things that, of course, the Catholic Church promotes sure. because the Catholic Church promotes natural law and, and natural morality alongside a divine revelation. So the family or um, like there, there's this whole... and people's mileage will, will vary on this, but there's this whole subtext and I wouldn't even call it subtext, but like De Hoyos's, um, conflict with the government about like, he wants to have a wood burning stove and like right. the, the eco policy is that you can't do that. Right. And, um, it, it's a very, um, green, so to speak, um, society and De Hoyos is, is pushing back against this. And, and so, so O'Brien really is showing his hand here in some sense, because a little bit like Robert Hugh Benson did in Lord of the World, because what he's saying, and, and when we talked about the Tale of Two Priests episode when we talked about The Power and the Glory by uh, Graham Greene. Mm. You know, what they're seeing is they're seeing a lot of these sort of Marxist, so socialist, secularist ideologies as being in every way, shape, and form in opposition to, as you say, natural law, Christianity in general, and particularly, you know, Catholic Christianity and devotion. And he kind of, you know, pulls no punches in showing that in every way, uh, this is a suppression of life, which sets up in, right, sort of mm -hmm. this irony because you have this ship, this, like you say, a city-sized ship going through to bring humanity to a new world, and yet it is a sort of lifeless, suppressed, secularized humanity. And as they're on this nine-year journey, De Hoyos and some of the characters that are kind of his allies on the ship began to talk about how we are basically a, a lifeless people, mm -hmm. uh, a poisoned race. Uh, with a big, beautiful spaceship, but bringing a, a sort of corrupted humanity to a new world. Right. Um, and as you get to know De Hoyos through the course of that first section of the novel, you, you kind of realize that it's inevitable that he's going to be in conflict with, with the, the DSI agents running this ship. Um, he already kind of has a bad reputation with them because he used one of his Nobel speeches back in the day, um, decades ago by the time of the novel to, to basically scold the world government for their policies regarding children, um, abortion, and abortion, abortion and, and sterilization mm -hmm. and, and one child policies that it was even, even although he's not a practicing Christian or, or Catholic at the time, he recognizes that this is basically a, a suicidal mm -hmm. course of action for humanity. Humanity has, has chosen while on the one hand, it's technological achievements. Mm -hmm are, you know, uh, greater than ever, in a sense, it's on a, a suicidal course where it is killing itself, literally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and as you get more flashbacks throughout the novel and De Hoyos talking about his own past, you, you find out 
personal reasons why he in particular um, opposes these kinds of policies, even though he's not a Christian. You could call him a sort of secular conservative or libertarian. At the beginning, he's for privacy. He's for personal autonomy. He's, he's for family and, and children and kind of the government not being as controlling. Um, and that's kind of the basis of his initial conflict with DSI, because what he discovers is that even though they were promised privacy, they are screening all of the electronic communications. They live in a surveillance yeah. society in which your private thoughts, your, I mean, and that now, you know, O'Brien is drawing in like 1984 kind of stuff where mm-hmm. every, your private thoughts, everything, you know, two plus two must equal five if DSI determines that it, it needs to. Right. And of course they're not surveying communications just for fun. It's, it's trying to find out who is a dissenter in order to control right. and manipulate them. And again, you know, O'Brien's themes here are so as we said, sort of multi-layered and rich. So one of the things that defines De Hoyo as, as a character right from the beginning, like the first pages of the book, is he's a young child and he gets bitten by a rattlesnake mm-hmm. uh, out in the desert in New Mexico. When this, he's a this kid. in a flashback, yeah. Yeah, in a flashback, yeah. And when his flashback, he remembers his childhood and that that, in a sense, cripples him for life. Well, that becomes sort of foreshadowing in the novel that he was basically crippled by a serpent mm-hmm. and that the serpent becomes an important element in the second part of this book. So you want to talk about what happens when they get to uh, Alpha Centauri? Yeah. So after the nine year voyage and all of the conflict that goes through, which we won't get into the minutia of, um, they arrive at the planet. They discover that it is indeed habitable um, and has an ecosystem. Uh, at this point, because of all the conflict that, that De Hoyos got into with DSI, he's officially banned from going down to the planet. Um, but he does find ways through the friends that he's made to, to sneak down there several times. Um, and that becomes important. Um, but in, in any case, they start uh, exploring the planet, um, the, the plant and animal life. And right off the bat, or within, within a very short time of arriving there, they find out that though Almost exclusively, the, the animals don't seem to have... Well, yeah, even before you say that, yeah, this ahead. is interesting, is that their first descriptions of this planet, mm-hmm. which is Earth-like, right? and, uh, you know, oceans, you know, trees, whatever, frogs, a whole bit, it's basically like a, a beautiful new Earth, and they keep using the term Edenic, like it's a new Eden. It's a perfect new unspoiled Eden. Mm-hmm. And as you say, when the first sort of away parties go down to the planet, they find that all of the animals are not afraid of, of the humans because they have no natural predators. Right. It's a sort of garden paradise. A garden paradise. All the animals uh, live in, yeah, live in peace and harmony. And yet, and yet like on the first day or the first Mm -hmm. couple of days down the first away team, the first death occurs there. Right. Someone gets bitten by a snake um, and it's venomous and the person dies. There's nothing they can do about it. Um, And and this happens, it recurs a number of times um, when when they're exploring the planet. Um, So the the planet, which is Edenic, mm -hmm. is full of these poisonous serpents. And again, it goes back to the foreshadowing from the very first pages when Hoyos remembers when he was a child that a serpent crippled him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you have this, this exploration They're They're of course interested to see whether there is or was any intelligent life on the planet. And they're not really finding any traces of that. And then you have throughout that first section, you had a subplot um, of two friends of De Hoyos, um, Pia and Paul, 
who are relatively young and who fall in love with each other and want to get married. And that is forbidden. In fact, everyone was encouraged to be sterilized um, before they came. They had a choice, but they were encouraged. And marriage is forbidden. Um, no, one, no one can do that. And so what they do um, shortly after they've arrived on the planet is they sneak down to the planet. Um, De Hoyos is able to go with them um, and have a, a wedding. Um, and this is really the first major incursion of Christianity into the plot of the novel. Um, before that, it, it's not clear, especially to De Hoyos, that, that Christianity is present in the ship. But he goes down to the planet with them, and one of his other friends, Dariush, turns out to be a priest. And he is the one who, who performs well, I think the wedding. He's one of the, the scientific experts. He's an archaeologist. He's an archaeologist, one of the scientific yeah. experts. Uh, he's an Indian uh, from like India, uh, uh, Iran, I believe. Iran, Persian. Yeah, 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 it's Persian. That's what you say. And uh, and so he turns out to secretly be a Catholic priest, right? And and so now we have knowledge that there is a Christian underground. We have um, Paul and Pia, who are Christians. Um, uh, we have some of the pilots and Catholics, right? Particularly, particularly. Um, there's there's a, a one. Well, well. So Pia is Catholic. Paul is Orthodox. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other Catholic characters. The priest Darius is Catholic. Um, there's at least one character who's described as like an evangelical or Protestant Christian, but you can tell they're all, they all know each, who each other are and they're kind of looking out for each other and they've got this secret network. Okay. So to set the stage, we've talked about the world government. You've got this ship full of humanity's best and brightest, the mm-hmm. greatest technological achievement of mankind. And yet it is a sort of place that is uh, a fallen humanity mm-hmm. that's on this ship. And all of the sort of ills of fallen humanity, a sort of lifeless fallen humanity in a big, beautiful ship arrives at what seems to be a beautiful new earth, a new Eden, and yet it's full of snakes in the grass. And the church is now present. Mm -hmm. So O'Brien, through this book, has sort of set the table, if you will, or set the chessboard where you have this new Eden, a, a lifeless fallen humanity arrives. And yet within that lifeless fallen humanity is the germ of the church. Mm-hmm. And yet in this new Eden, there are snakes and poisonous serpents. And that brings the big uh, reveal. Yes. The book. So why don't you talk about the reveal? Yeah, absolutely. So about, we're about halfway through the novel at this point. Um, they're exploring the ship. And um, as, as kind of a one thing leads to another from that clandestine wedding on the surface of the planet, Darius, the, the priest who's also an archaeologist, comes to suspect that there's some kind of, you know, artificial structure like built by intelligent beings um, in the vicinity of where they celebrated that wedding. Um, And so he, he brings the archaeological teams there, they start to investigate and they discover that indeed there is something that was clearly built by intelligent life. I think it's uh, like in the side of a mountain. Yes. up, up, Up in the mountains, they find some towers and then they find a tunnel and the imagery at the front of this tunnel is of this winged being with multiple eyes. The carvings. Right. So it's like an ancient, what appears to be like an ancient temple carving. Right. But as you're describing, the carving on the front doors of this ancient temple are this winged. Winged, winged creature with eyes and horns. And, and so they, they bust into this. Again, Um, and the biblical references here, 
So we have yeah. this winged dragon with eyes and horns. At this point in the novel, I'm like, no, you don't go in there. This is yeah. nothing good can <laughs> well, this, come from this. Right. This is like a horror movie. It's like, <laughs> right. so when you find the ancient temple with the satanic dragon figure on the front. Go home. Yeah, that's right. Go. Don't <laughs> investigate. Don't open. Don't go uh, in there. But naturally they do um, because- I mean, because the novel needs to go somewhere, um, but also because this is a secular society. Because the plot, because the plot yes, demands the it. Pl- the plot demands it, but also <laughs> like these people are are not Christians. They're they're not religious in any way. Right. Um, they're just like, oh, this must be some ancient society um, that that uh, just happened to have um, biblical dragons from the Book of Revelation. Right. Um, all over. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> um, so, so there's this whole um, sequence of them uh, getting into the tunnel, into the mountain and discovering what's in there. And uh, what they, they end up discovering is a spacecraft and they discover a whole bunch of records. Um, and they discover that those, those towers um, outside of the tunnel appear to be some kind of technology, like they, they have moving parts and that kind of thing, possibly observation towers or something like that. And so bit by bit, they're finding out more and more about this society that was on the planet. And then by the ship, there is a chamber underneath that. So you're already in the mountain, but then you have a chamber underneath the ship that they discover. Um, and they discover this mass tomb. Um, this this grave, and it, it it would be comic if it wasn't so horrible, because they they discover all of these small skeletons, and what they're thinking at first is that either this was just a race of small people, and this is where they they put their dead, or there might have been two races on this planet, and one of them was taller, more like us, and one of them was shorter, and the reader and at this point, I think some of the Christian characters are already realizing that, no, this is what it looks like. This was a situation of child sacrifice. Yeah. So, again, O'Brien is sort of setting these themes that unpack. So, the on back on Earth, the one world government, the socialist, Marxist, whatever, mm-hmm. has enforced sterilization, abortion, destruction of children on this beautiful spaceship that comes here. It's a humanity that is practicing abortion on the ship, suppression, the death of children. De Hoyos, when he received his second Nobel Prize, had given a speech about how human, humanity becomes suicidal because it was killing its children. Now it comes to this Edenic planet uh, with the serpent in it. And what it discovers is that there's this race that was practicing child sacrifice, like Molech. Mm-hmm. And so these themes of child sacrifice, the death of humanity, the denial of humanity, the denial of the human person, you know, these are, these, uh, you know, what's great about O'Brien is he'll spend half a book sort of setting the table and then it's like, Mm -hmm. now it all kind of comes together. Yeah. Yeah. And you're definitely supposed to see a parallel between the society that sent this expedition, this voyage to Alpha Centauri and what they find there. Um, uh, John Paul II uh, used the phrase culture of death yeah. um, to describe this kind of thing developing in, in our own era. And, and that's really what you're seeing in both of these societies um, is, is a culture of death. And so you're finding out more about, about this ancient society that was there. Um, there's, there's still conflict between De Hoyos and the powers that be on the ship. And then uh, you, you have this very interesting uh, reveal about the society 
So how do we want to handle this reveal for our dear listeners? Right, Because right. this is like, we were talking before we started the recording, this is, you know, a little bit like, you know, like the Imshant Night Shyamalan movies or whatever, like, you know, uh, The Sixth Sense or whatever, where you find out Bruce Willis was always dead, you know, mm-hmm. Th- there's a reveal at this point that changes everything. And so we're just going to tell you, if you want to read this book and you don't want the spoiler, then stop the podcast now mm-hmm. and buy Voyage to Alpha Centauri by Michael O'Brien and read it. But we're going to go full warning ahead. We're going to reveal the spoiler or give the spoiler of the reveal. You know what I mean? Yep. So, so they find records and what uh, Darius, the, the priest archaeologist character, is able to discover is that these aren't aliens. These are humans. Um, they were part of an expedition that set out essentially at, at the time of Noah's flood. Yeah. So this is weird, right? You right. know, like, well, when did humanity send a spaceship to Alpha Centauri? In the past, right? In the past, right? Like, well, where did this expedition come from? We don't remember sending an expedition. <laughs> Certainly we have never had the technology to do it. But the reveal is that in, in the antediluvian time, the prior to, to the time of the flood of Noah, and what we read in the scriptures is that at the time of Noah, that these Nephilim, which were, have been described potentially as a sort of hybrid of human and fallen angels, demonic forces, had this great society, and that is what God wiped out. And that somehow, some way, right? Right. Prior yeah. to this, that, that technology had existed, and these sort of demonic-human hybrids had the technology to send a expedition to Alpha Centauri. Yeah, the, the premise is essentially a, a sort of counterpoint or, um, or dark uh, mirror image of Noah and his ark, because in that you have God speaking to Noah, build the ark to save humanity from the flood, because I'm going to destroy um, the evil race from the earth. And, and in this account, you have demons making contact with humans and saying, we will give you the technology to build this spaceship and you're going to form a sort of counter arc that's going to go into space. To another world, right. another earth, a new earth, another Eden. And yeah, so as no, just as you said, as God has preserves humanity in Noah's Ark, the demons preserved the fallen humanity that the flood was intended to wipe out, which is a, a, a culture of ultimately a culture of death that was preserved by sending him. Mm-hmm. to this other planet under the, under the technology given to them by demons. Right. So, so essentially what you had is, you mentioned Moloch earlier, that is basically what it is, is that you had a, a society of demon worshipers, a satanic society that was on this planet um, and that died out over after many years. Um, because it's unsustainable. Right. The culture of death ran its course and it died. Um, and, and so you find that out. And then I'll skip over a lot of details because we're getting long here, but um, they, they think they discover how to make it all work, all, yeah. of, all of the technology. Yeah, so they're reading all of these you know, records and runes or whatever and figuring it all out and thinking like, hey, we can fire up the-, the Fire up the spaceship. The, the, because, because what the demons had intended was to build this spaceship so that the, the evil society in Office Centauri could come back. To Earth, right? So, so what you have is they're they're going to try and fire it up, and at least one person realizes that this is a bad idea. Yeah, really fired the bad <laughs> a bad idea to fire up the demon spaceship right. to go back to Earth. Um, but everybody else thinks it's a great idea, um, and so they do this, um, and you have this really um, sort of mic drop scene where they they 
make it all run. And then the Jehoios is up in the, up in the ship and then the video feed just cuts. And, and then he has to find out what happened is essentially they rigged it to be a giant nuclear bomb. Yeah. So it was a giant booby trap thing because never trust demons, right? <laughs> so the demons had told the society, hey, if you, you know, push these buttons and do this, you can fire the spaceship up. But it was all a giant trap. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we even, uh, you know, jump past that, there was a, there's a scene in there that really struck me when I read this book, especially the first time, where these secular scientists from Earth on this expedition, all of these experts in archaeology and biology and all the related fields to study, Mm -hmm. they go down there into this temple, this temple of, you know, basically evil humanity. And they fall under its influence and they begin to do this kind of weird orgiastic kind of dance and, and, and bizarre sort of pagan worship. And so simply being in this place under the influence of it because they're unrooted, they're unmoored, they're disconnected secularists, they fall into dancing around this temple and basically practicing this really demonic uh, worship. And at that point, De Hoyos and the Christians that are on this ship realize how evil this is. But it's a really striking scene when I first read it because you see them basically imitating all of the evil pagan societies that the scriptures describe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can really see that they've, the two societies have converged. Yeah. Um, so from there, you have this massive disaster. Um, uh, most of the crew of the ship has, has been killed. Um, they have to decide what to do. Um, and they decide to go back uh, to Earth. And so you, you have them go back, but you also have a party that decides that they don't want to go back to Earth in the oppressive um, regime there. And so you have a... Uh, basically a, a col- colonial team that goes back to the planet. They, and- would ra- they would rather live free as Christians because on this planet, right, now that the big evil spaceship and the temple of the demons and all that has been wiped out, it, it's a place where Pia and Paul and some of these other uh, Christians on the planet, if we, if we go back to earth, we won't be able to live as Christians or Catholics mm-hmm. um, because that's not allowed back on earth. And we'd rather take our chances and start found a colony here where we can live free. But some want to hit return. Yep. Um, well, and, and DSI, the, the authority that's kind of limping along at this point, but, but is still trying to assert itself, um, tries to stop this, fails. Um, De Hoyos has his opportunity to go with them. Um, and, and it's interesting because the, the character arc for him, he, he has not converted yet. Um, he, he still doesn't know if he believes in God or, or in Jesus Christ, um, he's certainly more on the side of the Christians than he is on the, on the side of the government. But um, he, he hasn't really had a conversion. Um, and he decides that he kind of needs to see this thing through. So that brings us to the third sort of section of the novel. Right. Third the, of the, three the return sections. journey. Yeah, the return journey. So why don't you describe that? Yeah. Uh, so, so they return. There's more conflict with, with DSI. Um, and it, it comes to a head and De Hoyos in a, in a fight with the head of DSI uh, accidentally kills his, his friend, the, the priest, and then kind of just has a bit of a break and he, he fires into the control panel of the ship. And now they're in a bind because they don't know how to basically 
control Opera. the ship. Yeah, they, right. they 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 can't initiate the the slowdown for for yeah. So so the ship is traveling near light speed mm-hmm. back towards Earth, and the navigation has been set to go to uh, our solar system, but it's hurtling at this incredible speed. I mean, you know, something like you know point seven point eight percent, you know, or whatever eighty percent of light speed, and it's just going to rocket through the solar system, and they don't have any way to slow it down. Mm-hmm. And, and so in a sense, in this third section of the novel, they, be, they realize that they'll return to the solar system and they'll get captured by the earth's or the sun's orbit, but they'll just basically become a endlessly, uh, like a, a ship just spinning around well, in well, space forever. Before that though, they're, they're worried that what's going to happen is that they're just going to hurtle into the earth and they're going to be a yeah. near light speed lu- nuclear bomb headed right. right at the earth. So you have this very tense number of years where they're trying to figure out how to maintain control, regain control of the ship and they can't. And then they're hurtling into the, into the solar system and earth can't stop them and they can't stop them. And they think they're going to essentially wipe out life on planet earth. And then in a scene that is essentially an instance of divine intervention, you have this Christian character who is able to sort of short circuit the ship and turn it away from the planet earth. But yeah, then they're just hurtling off into space and eventually they end up in orbit back around. Like orbiting the sun, but well, Alpha Starry. And so anyway, they're going to drift in space forever. And that's where we kind of come to think because what ends up happening is the church on this ship sort of emerges. And so what you have is this, the ship is called the cosmos and it becomes kind of a microcosmos, a microcosm Mm -hmm. of humanity. And it's a fallen humanity trapped in its technology endlessly adrift and yet the church mm-hmm. is still there right because you're able to find out at, at the end in, in a sort of um uh, epilogue uh that de hoyos eventually did um become a christian and that there there was a, a christian society on this ship during that time and, until they you know died out so what were the major takeaways for you in this book, right? yeah. Uh, well, we've we've already touched on uh, the the sort of dramatization of the culture of life versus the culture of death. I think that's a big one. Um, O'Brien is also talking a lot about technology um, and the control that technology can have over people, or, or or the way that it can empower some people to have control over others. Um, and and especially in the in the last section of the book, there's a lot of reflection on we can build it. But should we, and will it actually be good for humanity or, or the more power that we get from technology, will it, will it just allow us to do evil more effectively? Um, so he explores that theme a lot. There's, there's a lot of uh, reflection on, on uh, oppression by, by government and, and freedom and, and all of those kinds of things. So it, it's, it's got a lot to chew on. Yeah, I, I, would, I would say all that. You know, one of the themes that we've looked at a couple of books now um, between this and Graham Greene's Power and the Glory and, and we saw in Benson's Lord of the World is that the systems of this world and especially, again, I think all these authors are identifying systems that are intrinsically opposed to uh, the Christian worldview, to Catholicism which are these kind of secularist, Marxist, uh, socialist governments that as their, premise, their premises as materialistic and atheistic and destroy the nature of the human person, see the human personals, and he is a, is a useful cog 
in in society that that it's impossible for human life as God intended it to flourish in there. And yet there's grace. And I think that's the other part of this book is that despite all of the the bad things that happen, the bad uh, culture of death on earth, the bad culture of death on the spaceship, the cosmos, the bad culture of death on the, an Alpha Centauri, everything that happens. And yet there is this still small grace that persists, right? Mm-hmm. You know, God, God has his people. You know, you're reminded when, um, you know, Paul is told that, you know, God has his people in this city, that there is a remnant, that God will not let the church perish. He will not mm-hmm. let grace perish. That even in the darkest places, grace and life is greater than death and evil. Uh, and yet it's a struggle. And I think that that's one of the things that I take away is that struggle is perpetual. Another thing too is that the that our understanding of the cosmos and the universe is much is is limited. It's much bigger and more complex than we realize. Whether that's thinking through what the antediluvian reality might have been, whether it's thinking through whether or not demons could travel to other planets. You know, one of the things that struck me when I first read this book is how much it reminded me of C.S. Lewis's space trilogy. There's definitely influence there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, especially the first book in that, uh, out of the silent planet where they travel to, you know, another planet and you see sort of an unfallen world and yet humanity comes there and brings all of its problems and its sins, right? That humanity is tragically bent and wherever we go, we bring sin and fallenness with us. And, and yet, God is always there to send, as he did in C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, or in this book, God is always there, or in Graham Greene's Power and the Glory, or in Hugh Benson's Lord of the World, God always, and we'll see in Canticle for Leibowitz, our next book, that God always, no matter how bad things are, has his people and has his agents and has his mission of grace in the midst of that. Um, yeah. So- yeah, I, I think a major part of what O'Brien is doing in this novel is sort of pulling back the curtain um, because we, we talked about the, the similarities between the satanic race that colonized this planet and, and the secular race that, that sends the, the voyage. But what it is, is that the, the demonic activity is, is open in one and it's hidden in the other. And by mm-hmm. contrasting right. the two or, or, or sort of showing the similarities between the two, he shows us that, you know, a society may not believe in God, may not believe in demons, but that doesn't mean that they're not active. A great point. But at the same time, a society may not believe in Jesus Christ, but that doesn't mean that he has disappeared either. That the church is still there, um, is still being salt and light in the world. And, and you actually even have a parallel that they discover in the, the society on the planet, um, a couple of uh, people there who had an encounter with grace. Yeah, that this this struggle is will persist until um, until Jesus Christ brings it to a, a closure on a, on his return. But that and and Saint Michael and, and his angels cast the dragon mm-hmm. uh, into the abyss, right? But this this conflict will persist. And like you said, that I like your point there that you know before Noah, <laughs> when the the demonic Nephilim uh, sent you know the 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 evil humanity of that time to Alpha Centauri. In a sense, O'Brien may be very well saying, uh, maybe it was the demons who helped send 
the second one. We, in other words, we may be controlled in this culture of death more by the demonic than we realize. Mm-hmm. Uh, just as you, as you put it, just because we don't believe in them doesn't mean that they aren't there. Right? And just because we don't believe in them doesn't mean that they aren't uh, active and um, manipulating and controlling the direction of our world. Right, which is another strong parallel with Lewis's uh, space yeah. trilogy, because that's a lot of what he's doing there too. So, Voyage to Alpha Centauri by Michael O'Brien, Ignatius Press, fantastic read. If you love biblical themes, if you love speculating about these big topics, if you love thinking about culture of life, culture of death, if you love science fiction, if you're a Catholic who loves all these things, what a great read and can't recommend it more highly. Absolutely. Thanks, Corey. Yep. Thank you. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts and please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think, greg at consideringcatholicism.com.